Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. And by Whole Mission Marquette Method Natural Family Planning Services. Unveil the mystery of you and your spouse's combined fertility using an evidence-based, highly effective, and moral way of avoiding or achieving pregnancy. Discover more from a licensed healthcare professional at mmnfp.com. Previously on Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. Looks like a burial. In the road? Driver, what is it? It's a funeral, man, they're afraid of the men who steal dead bodies. So they dig the grave in the middle of the road. Their people pass all of the time. Zombie! Get up! Why did you drive like that? We might have been killed. Worse than that, monsieur. We might have been caught. Caught? By whom? Those men you spoke to? They are not men, monsieur. They are dead bodies. Zombie, the living dead. Look, here they come. You're listening to episode 159 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about zombies. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, be sure to stick around to the end of the episode, because we're going to have your feedback on our recent episode on the 1934 fascist coup in the USA. But first, for hundreds of years, there have been reports of strange creatures known as zombies. They're connected with the voodoo religion of the island of Haiti, but in recent years, they've become a pop culture staple. In movies and TV shows, zombies are depicted as reanimated corpses that roam the land seeking to devour human flesh, and human brains in particular. So what are zombies? What causes them, and what is the basis of this phenomenon? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. All right, we've got a lot to say about the mystery of zombies, so we're going to have, today is the first episode of two episodes where we'll be talking about zombies. But Jimmy, what were we listening to at the top of the episode? Some clips from the 1932 movie White Zombie starring Bela Lugosi. This was the film that introduced zombies into American pop culture, so it seemed fitting to use some audio from it. The film was inspired by a 1929 book called The Magic Island, which is about Haiti and Haitian folk culture. And it's interesting what the film picked up from the book. 
For example, the movie opens with a horse-drawn carriage coming down a road where a funeral is happening, and the people are burying a body in the middle of the road to keep it from being stolen and turned into a zombie. That kind of thing actually happens in Haiti, as we'll see. Bodies are sometimes buried in public places where people pass by all the time so that grave robbers will be deterred by the constant public presence. Zombies are very well known in Haiti, and in fact, today's episode artwork is a famous illustration of a Haitian zombie by the French artist Jean-Noël Lafargue. So in, in pop culture, there are a bunch of different types of zombies. Some are slow and shambling. Some are fast, like in World War Z. Some want to eat human flesh, and some want to eat brains, specifically. Some zombies are created by magic, some by disease, some by radiation, and some by technology. So what kind of zombies will we be talking about today? We may talk about all the different types of zombies and give a list of the different kinds in a future episode, but the zombies you see in pop culture don't actually have that much in common with the historical traditional zombies. And and those are what we're going to focus on in this episode, the real world zombies that actually exist. Now, hold on a sec. The zombies actually exist? You're You're kidding, right? This is a joke? No, I'm not. There are people in Haiti who identify as zombies and who are regarded as zombies by the community. Anthropologists and medical doctors have studied them. This is a real cultural phenomenon. Today, we'll be looking at how zombies are regarded, how a person becomes a zombie, and what the possible explanations are. We'll also be telling the stories of some former zombies who were liberated from this condition. And in case people are wondering, I am not kidding. This is not an April Fool's episode. This is real. The question is, what explains this sociological phenomenon? Wow. Okay. let's lay some basic groundwork then. What is a zombie in the traditional understanding? Basically, in Haitian folklore, a zombie is a dead person who has been brought back to life through folk magic. The person is in a state where they don't take much voluntary initiative and are susceptible to suggestion. They are then used to perform labor, typically manual labor that doesn't require a lot of skill or dexterity. We've got a lot of things to talk about here, and it's, it's difficult to know where to start. So let's, let's start with Haiti. Where is it? The Republic of Haiti is a nation in the Caribbean Sea between Florida and South America. Haiti is next to the island of Cuba, and it's located on the island of Hispaniola, which it shares with the Dominican Republic. The island has been inhabited since prehistoric times, and Christopher Columbus landed on Hispaniola on December 6, 1492. Afterwards, the Spanish focused on settling the eastern part of the island, which is now the Dominican Republic, and French buccaneers started settling the west part of the island, which is now Haiti, and it ultimately became a French colony. The French settlers established sugar and coffee plantations, and they imported a very large number of African slaves to work for them. In fact, the French settlers were outnumbered by the slaves by a factor of 10 to 1. There also was a growing class of free people of African descent known as the gens du color, and forgive my French pronunciations in this episode, uh, gens du color means the people of color, and they were free. Some of the gens du color also owned their own slaves. After the American Revolution in 1776 and the French Revolution of 1789, the Haitian Revolution began, and the colony sought its independence from France. 
the revolution lasted from 1791 to 1804, and it was ultimately successful. Prominent among the early revolutionaries were the gens du color and eventually the slaves, making Haiti the first nation to gain its independence through a slave rebellion. So go team. They were more successful than Spartacus and his associates were during the Third Servile War against Rome. Okay, and what's the origin of the term zombie? The precise origin isn't clear, but it's definitely taken from a root word that appears in several West African languages. These terms have similar but slightly different meanings, and they apparently coalesced and developed into the modern word zombie, which has changed meaning over time. For example, in a story published in 1838 called The Unknown Painter, the word zombie was used to mean a ghost, a disembodied spirit. This meaning is still around today, though today such a spirit is called a zombie astral, to distinguish it from the physical zombies that are reanimated bodies or walking dead. Are zombies the first kind of walking dead to appear in folklore? No, this is a concept that goes way back. I strongly suspect that the idea of monstrous reanimated dead people goes back as far as human history does. It definitely appears in other and earlier cultures. In medieval Europe, for example, they had all kinds of stories about dead bodies coming back to life as fearsome beings. Today, folklorists refer to these European zombies as revenants, meaning those who have returned, from the Latin verb revenire, or to return. And do all instances of a person physically returning from the dead result in a zombie or a revenant? No, when a person comes back from the dead, it can be in basically one of three modes. It could be in a superior mode where the person is better off than they were in their natural life. It could be that they return in the same mode that they were in during their natural life, so it doesn't make much of a difference, they're just back. Or it could be in an inferior mode, where the person is worse off than they were in their natural life. Thus, in the Christian faith, when people come back to life on the last day at the resurrection of the dead, they'll have glorified improved bodies, so they'll be much better off. They're not going to be shambling zombies. And sometimes, even before the last day, people return to a normal mode of human existence, like Lazarus in the Bible, or like when doctors today are able to resuscitate people who've been clinically dead. For a zombie or a revenant to be created, the person has to come back in a markedly worse way. It's returning to life in a way where there's something clearly wrong, which is why zombies are creepy and scary. You said Haitian zombies are supposed to be created by folk magic. Are they connected with voodoo? It depends on who you ask. Voodoo, which is spelled and pronounced several ways, is a folk religion that combines elements of Catholic Christianity with various African traditional religions. It overlaps with, but is not the same as various folk beliefs, including zombies. Because of that, practitioners of voodoo take different attitudes towards zombies. Some say that zombies are not a voodoo thing, that they're not a part of voodoo, but others say that they are, so it really depends on who you're talking to. From the reading that I've done, this division seems to spill over into who it is that creates zombies. According to everybody, it seems that zombies can be created by bokors, who are male practitioners of magic, and also, I suppose, by their female equivalents, who are known as kapladas. 
basically a bokor is a warlock and a kaplata is a witch. They practice magic that is harmful to people. What seems to vary in the accounts I've read is whether zombies are also created by the official leaders in the voodoo religion, such as hunguns, who are priests, and mambos, who are priestesses. In some accounts, hunguns do produce zombies. But in other accounts, the hunguns, who are the good guys that are supposed to help people, are opposed to the bokers that produce zombies. And many Haitians believe that zombies are real. Correct. Here are some gentlemen from Haiti speaking to the BBC. Yes, I've seen zombies. I've seen someone who has died and come back to life. We can raise zombies up in front of people and they will see. They will believe in their heads. And here's a discussion from National Geographic. Ingrid Lira is a voodoo priestess. It, it is a very difficult, uh, the zombie is very taboo and um, a lot of voodooism would probably say that I don't want to talk about that or it is not voodoo. But myself as a voodooism, yes, it does exist. Could this be some kind of national prank like Australians telling tourists that there's a fierce cousin of the koala known as the drop bear that we talked about in episode 148? No, if you do any digging at all on the Internet, you will quickly find numerous people acknowledging that drop bears are a joke. Just like here in America, if a child goes on the Internet and starts searching for information about Santa Claus, he'll quickly discover similar discussions about Santa Claus. There's even a section on the Wikipedia page about Santa Claus that covers this. And the same thing is true for drop bears. It's just not possible to have a national hoax with millions of people in on the joke and keep it from being known on the internet. But we don't find that in the case of zombies. Instead, we find multiple attestations of Haitian people taking them absolutely seriously. For example, consider what it says in this 1997 article from the prestigious medical journal The Lancet. The article is called Clinical Findings in Three Cases of Zombification, and it was written by Roland Littlewood of University College London and Siobhan Duyon of the Polyclinique Medica at Port-au-Prince. So one of the authors is a medical professional in Haiti. Zombification is a phenomenon regarded as exotic and improbable by the media, yet one which is taken by most Haitians as empirically verifiable. Haitian medical practitioners regard zombification as the consequence of poisoning, the clergy as the product of sorcery. Zombies are frequently recognized by the local population, and estimates of their number are of the order of up to a thousand new cases per year. Zombification is a crime under the Haitian Penal Code, Article 246, where it is considered as murder, although the zombified individual is still alive. So as of 1997, this was reported to be regarded by most Haitians as an empirically verifiable phenomenon. According to the standard account, what is believed about zombies in Haiti? According to the Lancet, local interpretation is that either by poisoning or sorcery, a young person suddenly and inexplicably becomes ill, is subsequently recognized by their family as dead, placed in a tomb, stolen by a bokor or sorcerer in the next few days, and secretly return to life and activity, but not to full awareness and agency. Haitians are seldom buried, but placed in painted concrete family tombs above ground, which in country areas are on family land next to the houses. They are vulnerable to being broken open. 
local beliefs about body, mind, and spirit recognize the separation of the Kurkadavra, the physical body, with its Guo Bon Ange animating principles, from the Ti Bon Ange agency, awareness, and memory. In zombification, the latter is retained by the sorcerer, usually in a fastened bottle or earthenware jar, where it is known as the zombie astral. The bokor either extracts it through sorcery, which leaves the victim apparently dead, or else captures it after a natural death before it has gone too far from the body. The reanimated body remains without will or agency as the zombie cadaver, which becomes the slave of the bokor and works secretly on his land or is sold to another bokor for the same purpose. It is induced to remain a slave only through chaining and beating or through further poisoning in sorcery. So a person dies because a bokor uses poison or sorcery on him. The person is buried, but then exhumed and brought back to life by the bokor. The bokor traps his spirit or a part of his spirit that involves his agency, awareness, and memory. Afterwards, he's forced to do labor, and he continues to do this labor either because of conventional means like chaining and beating or because of further poisoning and sorcery. Is there any help for people who have been zombified? Yes, they can be released from this state in several ways. Explanations as to how a zombie cadaver may escape back to its original family suggest that either the bottle containing the zombie astral breaks or the bokor inadvertently feeds his zombie salt, or he dies and the zombie is liberated by the bokor's family, or rarely the zombie may be released through divine intervention. So there are several possibilities, and we should say a word about the salt. This is an interesting part of zombie folklore that most Americans aren't aware of. The idea is that zombies need to eat a special diet, and if they eat salt, it will cause the bokor to lose control of them. In some cases, they'll then attack the bokor. In other cases, they will return to their graves and try to rebury themselves or at least die again at the site of their grave. And in still other cases, they return to their village, home, and family. And they're okay after that? Unfortunately, usually no. On release, their mental and physical status remains the same, and they are vulnerable to recapture and continued enslavement. Few bokor or doctors claim to be able to return a zombie cadaver to its original state of health and agency, and the matter is reserved for the mercy of Le Grand Matre, the Great Master, the rather remote god recognized by voodoo practitioners who is only invoked briefly through Latin prayers before they begin their ceremonies. So they don't usually get better, though sometimes they do, as we'll see. But normally they remain in a zombified state and are recognized by the community as zombies. What signs are there that give a zombie away to the community? There are several of them. According to The Lancet, Zombies are recognized by their fixed staring expression, their nasal intonation, which they share with manifestations of the spirits of the dead, by repeated purposeless and clumsy actions, and by limited and repetitive speech. Despite this, people are not really afraid of them. They're not regarded as dangerous monsters, as in American films and TV shows. Instead, they're regarded as people who have been gravely injured and who need pity and compassion. Where the fear comes in is the idea that you or your loved one might suffer this horrible fate and be zombified. They are regarded with commiseration. Fear is reserved for the possibility of being zombified oneself. Concern that a deceased relative may be vulnerable to zombification 
justifies prevention through decapitation of the corpse before burial or poisons and charms placed in the coffin. And there are other ways to keep your loved one from being turned into a zombie. We already covered burying them in a public place to make it hard for the grave to be broken into. And Harvard anthropologist Wade Davis writes in his book, Passage of Darkness, the Ethnobiology of the Haitian Zombie. So profound is the belief that an individual may be raised from the coffin that, in the countryside, relatives often take it upon themselves to ensure that their dead are both truly dead and of little value to the bokor. The limbs or heads of the cadaver may be cut off, a blade driven through the heart, or a bullet lodged in the temple. Because, according to magical beliefs, a corpse may only be raised if it answers the call of the bokor, the lips of the dead are sometimes sewn up with brass wire. Alternatively, a large pile of sesame seeds or an eyeless needle may be placed beside the body so that the intended victim will be too busy counting or attempting to thread the needle to hear the bokor's call. And there are other ways of preventing zombification. For example, it's customary to spend at least the first several days and especially the first several nights constantly watching the grave, often with shotguns in hand, until the body will have deteriorated enough that it can't be used as a zombie. Okay, so maybe various people in Haiti believe in zombies and have rituals to prevent relatives from being zombified, but this could be all superstition. They might even have legends or rumors about people being turned into zombies or even being encountered again after they're freed from their bokors. But you said that there are people, real, actual people in Haiti, who are regarded by the community as zombies. Jimmy, it's time to put up or shut up. Give me a case of a real, documentable person considered a zombie so that we know this isn't just legends and rumors. I'll give you three. All three of them were studied in 1996 to 1997, and their cases are written up in the Lancet article. First, here's the case of F.I., a woman who is referred to only by her initials to protect patient privacy. F.I. was around 30 years old when she died after a short febrile illness and was buried by her family the same day in the family tomb next to the house. Three years later, she was recognized by a friend wandering near the village. Her mother confirmed her identity by a facial mark, as did her seven-year-old daughter, her siblings and other villagers, her husband, and the local priest. She appeared mute and unable to feed herself. Her parents accused her husband of zombifying her. He was jealous of her after she had had an affair. After a local court authorized the opening of her tomb, which was full of stones, her parents were undecided whether to take her home, and she was admitted to the psychiatric hospital in Port-au-Prince. On examination, she looked much younger and thinner than in an earlier family photograph. She kept her head in a lowered position and walked extremely slowly and stiffly, barely moving her arms. On examination, her muscles had reduced tone, but there was no waxy flexibility. Apparently lacking motivation and unable to signal any wishes, she did not reply to questions, but would occasionally murmur some incomprehensible but stereotyped words, and was indifferent to passing events. She required assistance to feed herself. Electroencephalogram and central nervous system examination were unremarkable. She did not cooperate with a psychological assessment, nor with attempts at social rehabilitation. She did not respond to neuroleptics. On being taken to a market for an outing, she was immediately recognized by the crowd as a zombie. Second, here's the case of Wilfred Dorisant. Wilfred Dorisant, 26 years old, was the eldest son of an alleged former Tonton Macou, secret policeman, 
under the Duvalier's regime. When Wilfred Dorisant was 18, he suddenly became ill with a fever. His eyes turned yellow, he smelled bad like death, and his body swelled up. Suspecting sorcery, his father asked his older brother to obtain advice from a bokor, but Wilfred Dorisant died after three days and was buried in a tomb on family land next to the house of a female cousin. The tomb was not, as was customary, watched that night. Nineteen months later, Wilfred Dorisant reappeared at a nearby cockfight, recognized his father, and accused his uncle of zombifying him. He correctly recalled comments made by his family at the funeral. He was recognized as a zombie by the other villagers, the local Catholic priest, and the magistrate. He remained at his father's house, his legs secured to a log to stop him wandering away. His uncle was arrested at his father's request and sentenced by the provincial court to life imprisonment for zombification, confessing that he had been jealous of his brother who had used his literacy to register all the family land in his own name. Wilfred's father's story was supported by the villagers, the judges, and priests involved in the court case, the local coffin maker, and by examination of Wilfred's death certificate and the proceedings of the uncle's trial. I should mention that Wilfred's uncle later escaped from prison and went into hiding. When contacted by researchers, he denied this version of events and said that Wilfred's father accused him of procuring zombification so that the father could get the family land for himself. And he said that his confession was coerced by the police who were beating him up. Wilfred was a slightly built man, constantly scowling, looking younger than his age, much thinner than in an old photograph his parents showed us. He spent most of his time sitting or lying in a characteristic position, lower limbs to the left, upper limbs to the right, rarely speaking spontaneously and only in single words which were normal in form and content. He could not describe his period of burial or enslavement, but agreed he was malad, that is ill, and a zombie. He could be persuaded to walk with normal posture and gait, steadily but slowly. His parents reported that he was not incontinent and would tell them when he was hungry, but they had to bathe him and change his clothes. His eyes scanned around him with clear intent, his hands picking aimlessly at his nails or at the ground, and he avoided eye contact. His wrists were scarred all around, consistent with abrasions caused by chains or wire. General and central nervous system examination was unremarkable except for slight muscle wasting. He had difficulty identifying familiar objects when placed unseen in his hand, but would name them when he saw them. His parents reported periods of anger and irritation when he would ineffectually hit and kick out at others generally after being teased, and Malkadi fits during his sleep about once a week when he would cry out and his limbs would go into rigid spasm. There were no evident thought disorders, hallucinations, or catatonia. And finally, here's our third case, which is of a woman named Marie Moncourt. Marie Moncourt, age 31, was the younger sister of our principal informant, who described her as formerly a friendly but quiet and shy girl, not very bright. At the age of 18, Marie had joined some friends in prayers for a neighbor who had been zombified. She herself then became ill with diarrhea and fever. Her body swelled up, and she died in a few days. The family suspected revenge sorcery. After 13 years, Marie had reappeared in the town market two months before we met her with an account of having been kept as a zombie in a village 100 miles to the north and having borne a child to another zombie, or perhaps to the Bokor. On the death of the Bokor, his son had released her and she traveled home on foot. Marie looked younger than her age, with a small head and ears, 
thin and slightly built. She readily responded to attention, asked questions spontaneously, giggled frequently, and laughed inappropriately. General central nervous system and mental state examination were unremarkable. Her speech was fairly limited but appropriate with grammatical short sentences. She agreed she was ill, but not that she was a zombie. She was not regarded by her neighbors as a typical zombie because of her resonant effect and responsiveness to others. Her brother said she was duller, less intelligent than she had been formerly. She was not able to sign her name and appeared to us to be of low intelligence. She readily gave a vague account of her imprisonment, which agreed with that given by her brother. Her self-care was normal, but her family reported that she enjoyed being cared for and cuddled. So, yeah, there are definitely people in Haiti who are regarded by the community as zombies, and some of them, like Wilfred Durasant, regard themselves as zombies, while others, like Marie Moncourt, acknowledge that they are ill but don't claim to be a zombie, with their neighbors recognizing them as atypical zombies. So this is a real sociological phenomenon. The question is, what accounts for it? All right, we'll get into what accounts for that after we take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Lenka B, Peter M, John O, Gregory K, and Captain N. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. And by Whole Mission Marquette Method Natural Family Planning Services. Unveil the mystery of you and your spouse's combined fertility using an evidence-based, highly effective, and moral way of avoiding or achieving pregnancy. Discover more from a licensed healthcare professional at mmnfp.com. So, Jimmy, what theories are there about zombies? As The Lancet noted, in Haiti, zombies are explained by some as being due to sorcery and by some as due to purely natural causes. We'll therefore need to look at the subject from both the faith and reason perspectives. From the reason perspective, we'll need to ask about different natural factors that appear to be involved, including questions like, do zombified people really die and come back to life? Why do people identify them as zombies? And could there be other reasons for people being identified as zombies besides the traditional account involving bokers? On the other hand, are bokers responsible for creating zombies? Are zombies really being kept as workers? How would bokers manage to keep them? What results in their becoming free? And how many zombies actually exist? Then, from the faith perspective, and this will happen next episode, we'll need to ask about the spiritual side of the account. Do bokors have supernatural powers? And, of course, what are the ethics of all this? Okay, let's start with the reason perspective then. What can we say about zombies from the reason perspective? Before we get to the questions you've already mentioned, I wanted to ask a more general question about why do we find zombies creepy and how do they fit into the uncanny valley? The Uncanny Valley is a concept that was developed in 1970 by Japanese roboticists 
Masahiro Mori. The idea is that things that look kind of human but not very human can be cute and attractive, like the cute robots you see in cartoons or as children's toys. However, when the robots start looking very human but still not quite human, they suddenly become creepy, like creepy plastic people with fake skin and awkward motions. So attractiveness increases as things start looking more human, but then the attractiveness decreases dramatically as they start looking too human. That drop-off in attractiveness is known as the uncanny valley because the things in that zone look uncanny or eerie to us. And it's not just robots. This applies to other things, too. So why do zombies fall into the uncanny valley? In the case of the zombies we find in American pop culture, the ones that are supposed to be literal dead bodies and often rotting dead bodies, they're definitely uncanny. I think the reason for this is that humans are programmed on a biological level to find dead human bodies creepy, especially the bodies of people they don't know and who aren't loved ones. And we definitely want to bury, embalm, cremate, or otherwise deal with even the bodies of our own loved ones soon after death. The reason is that dead bodies aren't healthy for us to have around. They start deteriorating, and that can make living humans sick. So we need to deal with dead bodies quickly in order to avoid getting sick. And that makes the American idea of rotting walking corpses inherently creepy because of our inbuilt biological instincts. But Haitian zombies are different. Correct. Even though they're thought in folk culture to have died, they're not dead and deteriorating now. They've been brought back to life by the Boker's magic. So they're not as creepy, but people still sense that there's something wrong with the zombie. They're just not as creeped out as we would be, and they regard the zombies with pity and compassion. So I don't think that Haitian zombies fit into the uncanny valley in Haitian culture the way American zombies do in American culture. So do the zombified people really die and come back to life? Bokers don't use advanced medical equipment like defibrillators, so unless they really have supernatural powers, the answer is no. We'll consider that question, the supernatural powers one, from the faith perspective, but if we stick purely with reason for now, we would say no, they don't really die. Instead, they appear dead, but they're actually in a state where their vital signs have become undetectable. They may even display other characteristics of death, like muscle rigidity that looks like rigor mortis, but they're really still alive. They could enter such a state either naturally, like going into a deep coma, or they could be deliberately placed in such a state by bokers, such as by using the poison that they are often reported to use as part of their folk magic. In either case, the resulting entombment would be a case of premature burial. How credible is it that people would be buried prematurely when they're really still alive? In a contemporary high-tech setting, it's not very likely. Modern Western medicine is very good about making sure that people are not just really dead, but really most sincerely dead. And our pre-burial processes like embalming would make sure of it anyway. 
However, historically, premature burial has been a real thing. There have been real cases of it, and people have been really afraid of it in the past. They even developed systems to try to prevent premature burial and let its victims have a way to let people know that they're still alive inside their graves if they wake up. I've thought about doing an episode on premature burial, but the stories are really scary, so I'm not sure if we'll end up doing one. In any event, in Haiti, people often die at home without doctors present to verify the death using advanced means, and their families bury them the same day. The Lancet notes, Given that death is locally recognized without access to medical certification, and that burial usually occurs within a day of death, it is not implausible for a retrieved person to be alive. So premature burial is a real possibility here. Why do people identify them as zombies? In some cases, people are identified as zombies because they're recognized by family or community members as people who are known to have died and been buried. If they're seen again, especially if they display zombie-like behavior traits, they're identified as zombies. On the other hand, they don't have to be recognized as a deceased loved one. It's sufficient for a person to be recognized as a zombie if an otherwise unknown person displays zombie-like behavior. That was the case, for example, with the 30-year-old woman known as F.I., who was immediately classified as a zombie by the people in a marketplace when she was taken there on an excursion. But if you find an unidentified person who can't speak or has trouble communicating coherently, you don't have evidence that a boker was involved, and so something else might be responsible. Could there be other reasons for people being identified as zombies besides the traditional account involving bokors? Here in the United States, if we saw a person shambling down the streets with awkward movements and it looked like the person couldn't take care of himself and they were having trouble communicating coherently, we wouldn't think that's a zombie. Instead, we'd have another explanation, like maybe the person is drunk or high. But if we can eliminate those possibilities, we'd think this person is mentally ill or has some kind of neurological damage. And those are things that could be responsible for the behavior of low-functioning Haitian zombies. The doctors who wrote the Lancet article tried to use the exhibited behavior and physical condition of the zombies they studied to give medical diagnoses of the patients. In the case of FI, they said, The presumptive diagnosis was catatonic schizophrenia, which is locally a not uncommon psychiatric illness. In the case of Wilfred Dorisant, they said, The presumptive diagnosis was organic brain syndrome and epilepsy consistent with a period of anoxia. His fits reduced to once a month with phenytoin 100 milligrams per day. And in the case of Marie Moncour, they said, Our presumptive diagnosis was learning disability, perhaps fetal alcohol syndrome. So there are medical conditions that result in zombie-like behavior or behavior that will result in classification by the public as being a zombie. Could these conditions be enough to explain the zombie phenomenon? Is it just people with mental or physical impairments who get recognized by their families after premature burial with no bocors involved? I'm sure that this is part of what's happening, but I don't think it's all of it. For one thing, we need to consider how the zombies get out of the tombs after being prematurely buried. And today, people are frequently buried in cement tombs above ground, like big cement coffins. So you can't just dig your way out. 
then how would people's loved ones get out of them? Well, one possibility is that in some cases, they don't. They remain in the tombs, and the relatives and community members only think that they see the person alive again later on. In other words, it's a case of mistaken identity. Really? People would mistake a complete stranger for their loved one? Well, often the zombie shows up years later. Uh, They haven't seen their loved one in years, and they may not have photographs of what they looked like right before they died. And you'd expect the person to look older now. Also, if you thought they were in captivity as a zombie, you'd expect them to be mistreated in ways that could alter their appearance. They may have been physically beaten and abused. They likely would have been malnourished and lost weight. So maybe years after your loved one died, you'd find a mentally ill or disabled person who happened to look rather like your loved one, and you chalk up the slight differences in appearance to the way that zombies are treated. And then you never open the tomb to look and see if your loved one is still there. In fact, your loved one may not be in the tomb, even if you do open it. Wait, what? (laughs) Why? Because human remains are a prominent part of magical preparations and ceremonies in Haiti. The Lancet notes, The number of people who told us they were engaged in attempts at zombification suggests the breaking open of tombs by Bokors is widespread. The use of human remains in sorcery is so common that most country tombs have been broken into, and the majority of ufos, temples, we examined, contained human skulls and other body parts. So grave robbing is extremely common, especially in rural areas, due to the desire to obtain human remains for ritual use. Thus, maybe your loved one was taken out of the tomb, and later you encounter someone who looks like your loved one and you identify them as a zombie. Why would the person claim to be your loved one if they weren't? In some cases, they don't. In the case of F.I., the 33-year-old woman who the doctors diagnosed as having cataleptic schizophrenia, she couldn't speak. As a result, she couldn't claim or deny being the deceased relative. In other cases, a different mental illness may be involved, and if it renders a person particularly vulnerable and suggestible, then normal people show up and start caring for you and declaring that they love you and that you're their loved one, you may believe them and you may think you are their loved one, especially if you have no clear memories of your former life. Or even if you have clear memories, you may choose not to correct them. Or you may be confused about what's true. Or you may try to correct them, but they don't understand what you're saying because you're having difficulty communicating Or they may just not believe you. And in some cases, if you're down on your luck and low functioning, you might even calculatedly say or confirm that you're their deceased loved one in order to get food, shelter, and care. So there are a bunch of reasons that a family might conclude that a similar-looking, low-functioning stranger is actually a deceased relative. Do we have documented examples of that occurring? Yes, the doctors who wrote the Lancet article were able to do genetic tests on two of the three zombified persons that they studied. In the case of Wilfred Dorisant, the 26-year-old man who had died at age 18 and then turned up alive 19 months later, they found this. DNA fingerprinting suggested that Wilfred Dorisant was not the son of his putative parents. So the DNA test said it wasn't their son. And I like how back in 1997 they called it 
DNA fingerprinting to make it clear to the reader that they were using DNA like a fingerprint matching test. Uh, today, we just say we did a DNA test. Then there's the case of Marie Moncur, the 31-year-old woman who had been zombified and then given birth to a child, either by another zombie or by a bokor. Even before they did DNA testing on her, something very interesting happened. With Marie's agreement, we took her to the area where she said she had been kept as a zombie. She was immediately recognized in the market as a local woman, known to be simple, who had been enticed away nine months previously by a band of rara musicians during the Linton Carnival. Both families now insisted that Marie was theirs and accused the other family of zombification. Marie's daughter and brother then appeared, who closely resembled her in physical appearance, mannerisms, suggestibility, and minor learning disability. She recognized her daughter, whom she had previously named correctly to us, but she still insisted the father was a fellow zombie. The villager said she had been formerly married to a local man, but we were unable to locate him. Marie appeared to recognize her cousin as the Bocor's son, but the villagers ridiculed the idea. We assumed that Marie's case was one of mistaken identity. She had apparently been abducted or wandered away from her home and eventually ended up where she was recognized as a deceased and now zombified sister. And when they did DNA testing, they found that Marie was not the daughter of either of the families that recognized her. Both of the families were wrong, but they found that she was the likely mother of the daughter that she had claimed to have in the other area. So Marie appeared to be a developmentally challenged and possibly mentally ill woman who did not clearly remember her past. So does this mean we can dismiss all zombies as cases of mistaken identity involving mentally ill or mentally challenged people and that Bokors have no involvement? No, because Bokors really are breaking into tombs in Haiti. It's easy to find pictures of cement tombs with holes knocked in them from Bokor activity. It's possible that in some cases they find people who have been prematurely buried and then use that person as a zombie. In the case of Wilfred Dorisant, the doctors determined that he had symptoms of organic brain syndrome and epilepsy that were consistent with a period of anoxia. That means a period of oxygen deprivation, such as you might get from being closed inside a sealed tomb. Also, his wrists were scarred in a way consistent with having been bound with chains or wire. So even though he wasn't who people thought he was, Maybe he had been prematurely buried and then let out and used as a zombie. Then could Bokors be responsible for creating zombies? They could certainly run across a person who has been prematurely buried by accident and then impress the person into slavery. Why would the zombies remain in servitude? Why wouldn't they just flee or fight back? Well, when they first come out of the tomb, they're in a very weak and vulnerable position. After all, they've just been so unwell that people thought they were dead and buried them. Also, they could have suffered brain damage from being sealed in the tomb, making them even more vulnerable. In fact, according to an account we'll get to, when a, the Boker breaks open a grave, he isn't alone. He has followers with him, and they may beat the newly retrieved person into submission. You will remember that the Lancet mentioned that Perfectly ordinary means like chaining and beating are sometimes used by bokers to keep zombies in servitude. And Wilfred Durasant had those marks on his wrists that were consistent with being bound by chains or wire. So physical coercion is reportedly used to retain zombies for labor. 
there's also another factor that would likely be in play, the fact that zombies have an established social role in Haiti. What do you mean by a social role? A social role involves a set of behaviors that you're expected to exhibit if you're performing that role. For example, there have been psychological studies done here in America where they randomly divide people into two groups, like prison guards and prisoners. They tell one group, you're the guards, and another group, you're the prisoners, and then they see what happens. And because these people know what prisoners and guards are supposed to act like because they're known social roles, they start acting accordingly. Reportedly, this can lead to some extreme situations. Now, there are some criticisms to be made of the most famous study along these lines, but it doesn't stop social roles from being real things that guide people's behavior. For example, in episode 52 on hypnosis, I explained that I suspect hypnosis is essentially a social role. We all know what hypnotized people are supposed to do. Uh, you know, they're supposed to relax and do what they're told. And since people know that's what's expected of them when they're hypnotized, well, they just relax and do what they're told. And the same thing could be playing a role when it comes to zombies. Correct. If you really believe in zombies, if that's a social role for you, then when you seemingly die and come back and a boker is telling you what to do, you may say to yourself, I guess I'm a zombie now. I've been magically enchanted. I'm chained and or beaten if I disobey. So I guess I'll just go ahead and relax and do what I'm told and settle into life as a zombie. It's even been suggested that this may play a role in the salt-free diet that zombies are supposed to eat. It could be a kind of social reinforcement. If I'm getting bland zombie food, that would be another sign that, well, I'm a zombie now. Bokors might accidentally discover people who've been prematurely buried and then impress them into servitude. But the more interesting question would be, could Bokors be responsible for turning people into zombies by using poison to cause their apparent death and then using a similar preparation to keep them enslaved? What's the evidence to hear? This has been the source of a good bit of debate since the 1980s. In that decade, a Harvard anthropologist and ethnobotanist named Wade Davis went to Haiti to investigate the zombie phenomenon and to try to determine what the famous poison consisted of. He later wrote about his findings in a book called The Serpent and the Rainbow and in another book called Passage of Darkness, The Ethnobiology of the Haitian Zombie. While he was in Haiti, he got to meet and interview the man who was at the center of the most famous case of zombification. And that story is something we'll be talking about next episode. And you'll want to hear our next episode because the story is about to get much stranger. We're going to be hearing about the best documented case of zombification, a man whose death was medically certified and who was not a case of mistaken identity, and we'll be talking about the role of secret societies in Haiti and what's reportedly the real reason for zombification, which isn't just to get cheap labor. So, Jimmy, what's your preliminary bottom line on zombies? 
zombies are a real phenomenon. There are people in Haiti who are considered zombies, and some of them consider themselves zombies. The question is what explains this sociological phenomenon. On that question, I think there's likely more than one explanation that contributes to it. In some cases, it includes factors like mental illness and disabilities, premature burial, mistaken identity, hoaxing or fraud, and the social role that zombies know how to play based on being brought up in a culture that believes in them. However, there may be other, more mysterious factors, which we'll talk about next time. Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listeners on this topic? We'll have links to Wade Davis's book, Passage of Darkness, The Ethnobiology of the Haitian Zombie, as well as his book, The Serpent and the Rainbow. We'll also have a link to a little ebook by Garth Haslam called Zombies, History, Belief, and Modern Ideas. And his is a really good summary. It's very short, but it's also really good. We'll have a link to articles on zombies, revenants, Haiti, Haitian voodoo, the Lancet article we've been quoting from, which unfortunately is behind a paywall. But, you know, if you're a doctor or, or want to, otherwise want to get access, you can. We'll have articles on the Uncanny Valley, Premature Burial, the video of the now public domain film White Zombie. Also, that BBC short video and the National Geographic short video that we heard clips from, as well as a long-form video called Interview with a Zombie, which is a documentary about Wilfred Durasant. So it's made, this documentary Interview with a Zombie is made by one of the British doctors that contributed to studying his case, and, and it also covers the case of Maria Moncur. So if you want to learn about those two cases, definitely check out that video. Excellent. All right. So before we end things, we want to get some of our mysterious feedback in. And this time we're talking about mysterious feedback from our 1934 fascist coup episode. And the first feedback comes from Ethan, who sent an email. I'm an economics student, certainly not an authority on the Great Depression, but I've done research on the topic. Near the beginning of the episode, you said that the Depression was caused by market instability, though this isn't the case. The Great Depression was a recession exacerbated by poor fiscal policy on the part of the American Federal Reserve. The Reserve failed to act as the Reserve Bank, its primary purpose, by refusing to lend capital to the consumer banks, institutions that you or I would withdraw money from. The lessons we've learned from that mistake have ensured a number of recessions, including the one presently being experienced, have been relatively minor. This topic was explored in Dr. Milton Friedman's Nobel Prize winning A Monetary History of the United States. And for further research on how we have learned from the government-created errors of the Depression, you can look into a concept called quantitative easing. I really enjoyed the episode. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Ethan. I'm familiar with quantitative easing, and folks can look that up online if they'd like more information about it. Actually, I phrased myself carefully in the episode and didn't say that the Great Depression was caused by market instability. We noted that the great market crash occurred at the beginning of the Great Depression, but I carefully didn't attribute causality to it. I'm aware that there's a debate among economic scholars and historians about was the great crash of the stock market a cause or a symptom or something of both in this area. So rather than saying one specific thing caused the Great Depression, I just noted the events that occurred as it unfolded. Clarence writes on YouTube, Hi Jimmy, Mussolini was not executed in 1943, 
He was murdered in 1945 and ruled North Italy till then. Thank you, Clarence. You're right. I did misspeak in the episode. I went back and checked and I said that the Italian involvement in the war got more complicated in 1943, which it did when King Victor Emmanuel III signed an armistice with the Allies. And that led to Mussolini setting up an independent Italian nation in the north of Italy. And he did go on to to live until 1945. So that was a slip. I blurred the two events in my own mind. Thank you. Michael writes on Facebook, I was blown away. I consider myself a bit of a historian, but I'd never heard of this incident before. At one point, I actually looked at the calendar to make sure it wasn't April 1st. Thanks for a great episode. Thank you, Michael. And uh, we only do April Fool's episodes on April 1st. That's when we release them. If it's any other day of the year, it will not be an April Fool's episode. Lauren writes on Facebook, as I was starting to listen to this episode with my daughter, she asked me what fascism is. I attempted an explanation, but then said, knowing Jimmy, he'll give you a better one. He didn't disappoint. Fascinating episode. Thanks, Lauren. And that's something I really try to do is, you know, keep the terminology easy to understand and define terms for people who may not be aware, because for all of us, there are words we need to have defined, me included. Jordan writes on Facebook, thanks for this episode. I had just talked about fascism, FDR and Smedley Butler's War as a Racket in my U.S. history courses last week. I've already shared this with my students and am working on making it an opportunity for bonus points. Hey, awesome. That's great. I love to hear about Mysterious World being used in classroom settings. So I hope that uh, your students who decided to get bonus points enjoyed it. And please say howdy to your class for me. FX Red Rider writes on YouTube, I am a veteran and a lot of my friends are veterans. We often remind each other that our oath never has an expiration date. This man is a perfect example of this. Indeed, it's really great to see how he regarded himself as still a defender of American democracy, even after he was out of the military, and how he counted on other veterans to take the same attitude. Cindy writes on YouTube, I think this is a good episode for this time right now. There are eerie parallels. And in fact, I had this script ready earlier than we actually used it. I had it in as one of the reserve scripts, and I delayed using it until after the events surrounding our last election and the protests at the Capitol building and things like that. And it was a little too eerily similar in some aspects to recent politics. And I wanted to let things cool down a little bit before we use this one. Right, right. Charles 22 writes, justifying a coup isn't something you do decades later to meet the just coup criteria. It's something the coup instigators have to decide for themselves beforehand. If everything were equal and you knew back then what we know now, then yes, less justification for such a coup against FDR or the powers that be. In fact, if anything, back then, these coup people only were considering it because of fascist success elsewhere, where at least short term, it seemed to be doing a world of good, Germany in particular. I agree with Charles that we can only look at things in hindsight today, that you have to make decisions in the moment, given the limited knowledge you have in a particular time period. So I never try to judge the hearts of people in when we're looking at historical events like this, because I wasn't in their situation. My knowledge of what happened is different than their knowledge. And so I don't claim to judge anybody's hearts. 
the best I can do, though, is look at the situation given what's known now and say, well, in hindsight, would this have met the criteria? And in this case, I don't I don't think it did. But that's a separate question than would they have been subjectively justified at the time? What I can say, that is a question I can't address because I don't know their hearts. But given what's now known, I can say it looks like objectively this was not justified. Uh, And then Ben writes on Facebook, wow, what a great podcast and one that I find interesting and as always balanced and logical. Also, I think you are correct in that we dodged a bullet. Yeah, I think we did, too. Uh, I think that the coup plotters were serious and they had serious resources that they could have used. And we were very lucky. And uh, thank you. I always try to be balanced and fair in looking at these mysteries. And thank you, everyone, for your feedback. Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? So in April, the British royal family suffered a loss of Prince Philip, who was the consort of Queen Elizabeth II. And there's been a lot of tributes to him and uh, outpourings of sympathy and condolences to the royal family. And there has been some interesting reporting on certain little bit more mysterious aspects of Prince Philip's life. One of them is he had a reported interest in UFOs. In fact, he was apparently a founding subscriber of the British Flying Saucer Review. So we'll have a link to information about Prince Philip's interest in UFOs. Another member of the royal family that was you know, associated with Prince Philip was Lord Mountbatten, and he had a reported alien landing on his estate that was witnessed by a bricklayer who then made an official report on it. And if you want information about that, we'll have links to that as well, including, you know, photocopies of the original report that was filed. Then there's another aspect to Prince Philip's life, and that's the fact that he was worshipped as a god or something like that. There is an island in the Pacific Ocean near Australia. So this is not Haiti. This is on the other side of the world from Haiti. But there is a group of people there who had a legend that a white man would come out of the local volcano and then cross the sea and marry a powerful woman. And this was a divine supernatural figure and that he would then one day return. And when they saw Prince Philip, who was on a tour of the area, they said, oh, this is the guy. And so they they subsequently began to worship him as a supernatural figure. And he seemed to be polite about it, as I guess you would expect British royalty to be. He like sent him a picture of himself. They sent him some local artifacts He didn't do the, come on, guys, I'm just a man thing like St. Paul did. It was a little too polite, maybe. But uh, they have now had to deal with his death. And so apparently there was some early indication that they might switch their allegiance to Prince Charles now that Prince Philip was dead. But it appears that at the moment, at least, they've decided they're waiting for Prince Philip's return to their island, either physically or spiritually. Interesting. (laughs) It's an interesting world we live in. Mm -hmm. (laughs) All right. Thank you for those headlines. So that's it from us. What are your theories about zombies? What do you think? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, 
You can send us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or send a tweet to at mys underscore world. So, Jimmy, what are we going to be talking about next time? Next time, we're going to be going deeper into the mystery of Haitian zombies and learn about bokors, poisons, criminals, and secret societies. Hmm. Folks, remember to share the podcast with your friends and write a review of the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast from. That helps us grow this community of listeners and reaches more folks. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Yakin, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>